Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's right on the dot of four o'clock and it's Jan Bartlett with you until six this evening with Tuesday Home Time. Today, part two of my longer interview with American peace activist Kathy Kelly. Also talking about the 3CR book launch, which is happening this Friday. I'll be speaking with program producer Juliet Fox, Dr Tim Anderson from Sydney University, and also part of the group Hands Off Syria, has just returned from that country. Refugees, the rage and despair and disgust at the federal government and the opposition of their treatment of refugees. I'll be speaking with Peter Murphy and also Jack Smith. But first, let's hear it for Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Listener, when I understand how difficult it must be to concentrate on this segment this afternoon as we all await breathlessly the budget, the growth and jobs budget, which will all be about growth and jobs, because what this country needs is growth and jobs. So the budget will deliver growth and jobs, while the profligate socialists will only deliver waste and big spending we can't afford, which won't generate growth and jobs, which is what this country needs and which the budget will provide, and the rich will get a tax cut the very day before the election, which the minister for something or other, for being a minister, we guess, Christopher Payne in there, said was a pure coincidence reflecting the government's commitment to growth and jobs. And tax cuts for the rich were the big handout to the poor, the penurious, the lazy, avaricious workers who would then be better off for the tax cuts would provide growth and jobs. Unlike last week's socialist state budget, which was socialism run riot, as the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin pointed out, maintaining its renowned commitment to accuracy, to the news and nothing but. No editorial bias slant Thursday's coverage of the budget. Although I have to say, when it comes to Lord Rupert, poor old state supremo hoo-hoo can't take a trick. Lord Rupert still refusing to forgive the electorate for getting the election wrong. The sort of budget those who know what's good for us dream of. Big spending to bolster the big end of town's bottom lines, alongside a huge surplus, that is, taxes raised, not spent on what taxes are raised to do, neoliberal paradise, and how does Lord Rupert respond? Socialism run riot, it turned out. Dan's Tax Express, a record tax haul fuelled by... Dan, by the way, is apparently Hoo-Hoo's name. Well, well, not the by-the-way bit, the Dan bit. Anyway, Lord Rupert said, if the socialists had all that money to splash about, they should have splashed it about through tax cuts to the rich. Having all that money to spend clearly proved the rich were being ripped off by the government, overtaxed poor dears. Why waste taxes on infrastructure and services? Although, if a different government had come up with a similar budget, no doubt Lord Rupert would have praised putting all that profit into the bottom lines of those corporate beneficiaries. But Thursday, moving on from P1, Tax Express, its deeply philosophical and logically irrefutable editorial opened the Andrews, 
Andrews also hoo-hoo, apparently. The Andrews government has thrown megabucks at everything, care of a slew of tax grabs, in the hope of restoring its political fortunes. Interesting logic, that, given the only place where Lord Rupert, or where it suggested the government's fortunes need restoring, is the editorial columns of Lord Rupert's media. Kind of a vicious straight line. Not splashing money out in rural northern Victoria, and most definitely not restoring her political fortunes, but splashing sheep shit all over her tray-expensive footwear, Sophie Mora Bellicose told the electorate that threw her out last time, Yeah, yeah, my friend, tiny a bit more for the bosses, took the ten million off you the hospital would have got if you hadn't voted for that undeserving bitch. Serves you right, serves you right. That'll make you vote for little old wonderful me this year. And Sophie couldn't understand why the proverbial hit the fan, why everyone said that would make them not vote for the charming Sophie. Perhaps I should have said pig shit over her tray expensive footwear because she was rolling this huge pork barrel at the time. Says heaps for Sophie's giant mind that she thought she was on a winner with, you got it wrong. Still couldn't happen to a nicer, could it? As we know, Sophie is married to a senior trained killer. Don't they deserve each other? And we can but imagine the humanity and empathy that would dominate their breakfast conversation. Humanity and empathy are not pork barrelling, oozed from the Minister for Coshing the Workers, Michaela Kosh the Workers, who announced workers would be far, far better off under a caring business class government if they were smart enough to re-elect Malcolm McCadia and the team. Uh, how would you make workers better off, Michaela? Lower wages and reduced conditions. It's so obvious, yet stupid, stupid, stupid evil unions and lazy avaricious workers can't see it. They need us to see it for them. As I told those wonderful pro-troubler Aussie low-paid mum and dad investors, owner, driver, individual contractor truckies, when I addressed their workers' rally, well, well, their individual contractors' rally, as they fought for lower wages and lower conditions, all workers workers would be better off if they all had the common sense to fight for lower wages and lower conditions. Uh, so, so did Malcolm or you address the May Day marches, Macadia? I will not participate or give legitimacy to long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden work in an iron, evil, anti-Trublowazzi treachery. Individual contractors of the world unite. Our workers will be better off if they vote for you, you say, but you're already the government. After three years, why aren't they better off now? Because the anti-Trublowazzi socialists and the anti-Trublowazzi greens and the anti-Trublowazzi independents who shouldn't be there in the first place have prevented us from crushing the evil unions and those lazy avaricious workers who falsely believe better off means being paid and having crippling conditions like safety and time off. Thankfully, in this May Day week, if workers of the world can't unite, at least capital can. Free to move all over the world, unrestricted at the touch of a screen. All over the world, usually, well, almost always by a major international hubs like Panama, the Caymans, Luxembourg, those sort of places. They're so generous to those places, aren't they? While events this week show, thankfully, workers workers, human beings, well, non-owners of the means of production, human beings, are not free to move. What's that commotion? Oh, why, it's Malcolm and little Billy yelling at each other.
We will be crueler than you. These illegal, no proper papers, queue-jumping boat people will never get here. Sack the lefty commie PNG Supreme Court. Wrong. We will be much crueler than you. I guarantee, under a short and ambition government I lead, these illegal, no proper papers, queue-jumping boat people will never get here. We would charge the PNG Supreme Court judges under true blue Aussie law and send them to Indonesia in other people's business for execution. I would send our border force to get them and these illegal people who, after all, are not in detention. Look, the Minister for Concentration Camps, raise a wire and sink the boats, has painted this new sign, Manus Island Paradise Holiday Resort, proving it's not a detention centre. These people should be thankful. Tell them, Peter. My name is Peter Duffer. My name is Peter Duffer. My name is... Uh, yes, yes, but remember that other line I told you? The, the other line we talked about, Peter? My name is... Oh, was that these illegal, no-proper papers, queue-jumping boat people, true blue Aussie, we sent to the Manus Island Paradise Holiday Resort had nothing to do with true blue Aussie, with us. Smash the PNG Supreme Court. Well said, Peter, well said. I got it right, I got it right. I don't care how cruel you are. I guarantee the true blue Aussie people, a short and ambition government I lead, will be crueler, much, much crueler. But with Socialist Party values, those true blue Aussie values our brave train killers have guaranteed by invading countries all over the world like where these illegals come from. We were hoping, of course, to see little Billy on May Day to talk a little bit of socialism. Normally I'd have loved to, but, but I'm afraid it was too close to the election to be seen with certain people like workers. Being seen with workers would threaten a short and ambition government I leads opportunities to help workers whom I could have assured how cruel I'll be to these anti-True Blue Aussie illegal boat people who want to come here to take their jobs. Pity that we missed him. But rest assured, little Billy rest assured us, I will address the Chamber of Prophets whom I must be seen with and talk a little bit of socialism with them. Good politicking, that, for the Chamber of Prophets love a bit, well, a big, big bit of corporate socialism, which is good for all of us. As usual, those reliant on Lord Rupert for their news would have missed May Day altogether. There is a P8 headline in this morning's whopping sin. Talk about imbalance. And I thought, oh, a bit of self-reflection, but no, item about Walt Disney movies. Well, Lord Rupert hates imbalance. On budgets, these submarines, don't we feel more safe this week? Although it may not be necessary, because this US of the UN of the US of the world trained killer cannon fodder person on telly talking through his array of trained killer equipment told us from Iraq, we're fighting for everybody on behalf of the world. And on behalf of the world, aren't we thankful? No brainwashing in the free world. Finally, also heard Minister for Financing Capitalism Matthias Rotten-Tuther asked about overall education cuts under the government. In education, money is no guarantee of results. Why, in Belgium, they spend lots more money on education 
and look at me. Do we have to? Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And remember, if you'd like to hear some more of Mr Kevin Healy and Corey Green, it's nine o'clock tomorrow morning for City Limits. Uh, hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. I've, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, and really healthy and nutritious. La, 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 Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. And now the final part of my interview with American peace activist, pacifist and author Kathy Kelly, one of the founding members of Voices in the Wilderness and currently a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. When was your first action that ended in jail? Well, I had been part of a good number of uh, civil resistance actions where one would be taken into a sort of an office and ticketed and given a court date. But those really resulted basically in a slap on the wrist. But as activists began to go to our local federal building and sometimes lock the doors nonviolently sitting in or having a die-in or um, sometimes going inside the building and um, refusing to leave, we found that the federal government authorities would call the local Chicago police and say, we want you to arrest these people for violating disorderly conduct types of statutes or failure to comply. And so there were many times when we would be taken into a Chicago lockup and perhaps held overnight. And those are my first experiences with jails. My first experience with prison was in 1988 when a number of us had decided that even though I think just about all of us who were involved from several different cities in the Midwest of the United States had already decided that we would be war tax refusers. We had already become quite involved in different kinds of social work and activism. At the height of the Cold War, we knew that we had to find a way to do more with regard to the intercontinental ballistic missiles that were buried under the ground in the Midwest of the United States. There were a thousand of them buried underground in farmers' fields all through what was the breadbasket for the world, really, on the states that grew corn and grew wheat. And it was almost as though these nuclear weapons were like sewing razors through a loaf of bread. And we knew that the Soviet Union, likewise, had weapons aimed right back at us. And so... We had met for a year, uh, often in the apartment that I shared with others, and at the end of a year's worth of meetings, 14 of us agreed that we would either climb the fence or break a lock and enter into nuclear weapons sites, these intercontinental ballistic missile silos that were buried under the ground, and plant corn on top of them. And we were quite successful. We did that and reached many, many farmers, many people in the area, had no idea that they were living, for instance, in Kansas City, surrounded by 150 intercontinental ballistic missiles. People didn't know that a thousand of them were buried under the soil in the Midwest. And so through our actions, we were very confident that the word was getting out in a helpful way. As soon as the authorities would let us go, we'd go right back out and do it again and uh, plant as much corn as we possibly could on those 
official silo site. But when we were finally kept in jail and taken before the courts, um, the punishments were fairly severe. I got a year in maximum security prison myself, and others who held out for a jury trial uh, got even more severe sentences, some serving two and a half years in prison. What were the conditions in maximum security? I would say that it was a very harsh way for people to live. You know, who lives in the alley? Generally, vermin and rats and mice and stray animals. And we were all, you know, referred to as prison numbers who would be called for chow and live in an alley. And um, the guards, I think, almost prided themselves on being as curt as they possibly could. And you had to have a, a pass to go from one place to the next, and you could only move five minutes out of the hour. And it was terribly, terribly overcrowded, built for 800, and there were 1,400 people living there. And the lines to get a meal would extend so that you'd wait 30 minutes to get your meal, and then you had maybe five or ten minutes to eat it, and the guard would be saying, okay, move on. And, and so particularly for women who were sentenced there for five, seven, eight, ten years, separated from their children, often young mothers separated from infants, this was very, very hard. So I grew to have a strong aversion for the prison industrial complex. During those years after I was released, a prison was being built once every ten days the prison industrial complex grew so huge in the United States, and I think it's a very racist institution. Even as of today, 97% of the cases tried before the courts that are federal drug cases end up never going to trial. People take a plea bargain because they know that if they don't accept a plea, they'll be given four times more time in their sentencing, and the sentencing has gotten far, far worse when I was in prison in 1988, if we saw a woman who got a 10-year sentence, we'd all be whispering and pointing across the prison courtyard and saying, can you believe it? she got 10 years? Well, when I was in prison in 2005 and again more recently last year, 10 years was typical. And there were women with much longer sentences. And in the men's prison across from where I was in 2005, the median sentence length in, in this prison, which was a high-security prison, the median sentence length was 27 years. So you'd see young men shuffle, shackled off of a bus, and they wouldn't leave that prison once they went inside its jaws until they were grandfathers. The harshest thing about the U.S. prisons is the length of sentencing. And it's hard on the guards, too. You know, it's not a good job for anyone to have, whether they're at a federal or state or a, a county prison, to be treating other people as though they are objects to be held in something almost like a zoo. That's no way to live your life. Well, who benefits from it? Uh, well, no, Jan, I don't think there are any benefits. I think that it's, it's, it's all negatives that, that are derived from this mass incarceration. The rates of poverty have shot up because of the mass incarceration of uh, young black men, and that's now been proven through statistics. The ways in which people that are imprisoned end up in a kind of a revolving door, the recidivism rates being so high, mean that people are released and then they don't have 
much that will equip them to enter back into the community. And uh, often they're released and still expected to pay high fines, and they can't make those fines and also manage to pay rent and, and make any gains. And so they end up going back into different kinds of criminal activity like the drug trade. I, I don't think there are any benefits except for those who are being paid very handsome salaries to help lock the other people up. I'm thinking about the lawyers and the judges and the wardens. They benefit. And some of these new companies that are starting franchise prisons to lock up other detainees, like, for instance, people who are told you're um, undocumented and you don't legally have a right to be in the United States, so we're going to detain you until we deport you. People who open up privatized prisons benefit. But apart from those who say they're making financial gains, in terms of social benefits in the United States because of the prison system, that to me is an utterly preposterous notion. Well, it couldn't have been long after your first release from jail that you became involved with the the Gulf Peace Team, and that went on for many years, didn't it? Well, it did, and that's what I meant about getting more backbone. I am so grateful to the people who formed that team, some of them from Australia. I think of our dear friend Neville, who uh, was in 1991 just an anchor for the Gulf Peace Team, and likewise Rob Burroughs. And there was a good crew from New Zealand and people from the UK and Ireland and India, and uh, there were many, many fine people that came together in 1991 to set up an encampment in the desert of Iraq. Preferably, the group would have liked to have had an encampment on the Kuwait side of the Kuwait-Iraqi border and on the Saudi side of the Saudi-Iraqi border, but the Kuwaitis and the Saudis both said no. The Iraqis said, yes, this this can happen. And so um, we, at the outbreak of the 1991 war, were living in a desert camp. Some people hadn't been able to get to the camp or had tried to leave the country, and they were actually in Baghdad. Uh, eventually, we were all united again. And uh, it was out of that experience and the recognition that desperately needed goods couldn't get into the country and people weren't able to leave the country. And so we began to form teams to go up and down the roads, safeguarding the roads while also pledging to bring in humanitarian relief supplies. So it was out of that notion that a number of us eventually formed Voices in the Wilderness, and because the economic sanctions were still in place, and those were far more brutal and lethal than even the worst of the bombing. So we decided to defy those economic sanctions by traveling the roads of Baghdad, bringing in medicines and medical relief supplies, and uh, organized 70 delegations doing that between 1996 and 2003. We certainly started too late, but at least we finally got that project launched. And then we remained in Iraq, in Baghdad, all through the 2003 bombing, and especially tried to maintain relationships with communities in Basra, where some of us had visited many times and where several of us had also lived for three months just prior to shock and awe war. On 3CR, you are listening to an interview with American peace activist Kathy Kelly. And what was it like to live under that shock and awe? Well, it was shocking, and it was awful. Uh, the parents in these 
small family-owned hotel where I lived who had been invited by the hotel owner to come with their children and with their grandparents, even infants. In fact, a newborn baby was born into one of the families. They were just terrified. I remember so much on Zainab, who would you know, cradle her two little girls and, and, and look with alarm at her husband and wonder, you know, are we going to survive this? And uh, in the middle of the night, sometimes the bombing would just be so severe. And, and I would take one of the girls in my arms, and Labda, and uh, Abu Zainab, the father, would take the other little girl, Zainab, and just walk the halls and try to say, it's okay, it's okay. But it wasn't okay, you know. I mean, these children were traumatized. But I remember little eight-year-old Dima would sometimes stand and look so apologetically at her father because she was standing in a pool of her own urine. She was so scared she'd lost control over her own bladder. And I remember going to hospital emergency rooms and seeing just panicked families racing in, some with the remains of their loved ones, some with survivors that were bloodied and um, children whose bodies were torn open. I remember a woman who was just in great distress, sobbing, saying, how I tell him what I say? And she was going to have to tell her nephew that not only had both his arms just been chopped off by surgeons because they'd been turned into stumps by the bomb, and he'd lost both arms, but she was his only surviving relative. This is the kind of wreckage on lives of families that has created so much trauma in Iraq. There should be no surprise whatsoever that groups like the Islamic State formed, especially in the hideous prisons that were maintained by the United States while Iraq was under U.S. occupation, that people who have been subjected already to so much torment and trauma and displacement and bereavement and resentment and loss would desire revenge and would form groups that will use miserably awful tactics. And do we think that by further bombing people, by further exercising military might and force and threat, we won't cause even worse, even more frightening groups to form. And that's ridiculous. If you look at Afghanistan, if you look at Iraq, you can trace the abuses of the Taliban, you can trace the abuses of the Islamic State to groups who are responding to the militarization that destroyed their family lives and their infrastructure and their communities over the decades of warfare. And you must have seen similar things in Palestine? In Palestine, I think that we have seen such a staunch and adorable effort to maintain education, to maintain infrastructure, to continue farming uh, in Gaza, to continue fishing. But the Israelis have pounded people repeatedly, again and again and again. And I think that the Palestinians, at many junctures in their history, have had the sympathy of the world on their side. And I think that people are, all around the world, horrified by what Israel has done in their aerial bombardments and their usage of white phosphorus and their imprisonments of people and the tortures that have been enacted. And it seems to me that the participation of the people in the United States in supporting Israel 
especially most grievously in these uh, attacks against Gaza that have been war crimes and in the ongoing persecution of people in Gaza who who can't escape, who are so trapped in an unlivable situation. I think the participation of people in the United States has been so heinous because, you know, all Netanyahu, uh, Prime Minister of Israel, has to do is come to the United States, stand up in front of the United States Congress, and they'll all give him a standing ovation because the uh, Israeli lobbyists have formed such a vice-like grip on Congress people, and because the military corporations are selling so much weaponry to the Israeli military. After Iraq, the country you focused on and still focus on is Afghanistan. How many times have you been there now? Yes, well, I've probably been there about 22 or 23 times now. In the past year, we've been able to get visas to extend our stays to three months or so. Initially, when we would go, we could only stay for a month, so we'd stay for a month, go out and go back in. And I've had a chance to learn a great deal from the Afghan Peace Volunteers. I feel quite privileged to have had an opportunity to go and just kind of bunk in with their communities, working-class neighborhoods. They, they switch their dwelling quite often for security reasons, really. But since 2010, I've been, and others from the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia have been visiting the Afghan Peace Volunteers. And we're so pleased right now because... Uh, an Australian woman, Rosemary Murrow, and also our dear friend Martin Roish, are both with the Afghan Peace Volunteers in Kabul, and Rosemary is teaching permaculture to the Afghan Peace Volunteers. Their um, deep desire is to have a subsistence community in, in a kind of an autonomous zone that would raise crops and feed themselves and continue to develop the kinds of community activism that they've been engaged in over the last several years. And it's a dreadful situation in Afghanistan. Just give the figures once more of what the American government has spent in Afghanistan for war rather than to help the people. Well, I'm appalled at what the United States government has done in terms of fostering corruption. Maybe one way to perceive the of connectedness between the military and very corrupt entities would be to remember that in October of 2015, a United States C-130 transport plane that was weaponized flew over an Afghan hospital in the Kunduz province run by Doctors Without Borders, and often they're called Medfonds en Francais, and bombed that hospital, straight that hospital, from 2.05 in the morning until 3.15 in the morning. And this was done even though the hospital had called in their coordinates. It had to be clear to the United States military that this building was a hospital, especially after once the bombing began, hospital officials and, and several officials around the world, you know, were saying, call the United States, tell them to call these strikes. Forty-two people were killed. Uh, many people were The hospital is in a shambles. Uh, there's medical care now available for all of the many, many people and families that would have turned to that hospital for medical care. We then meanwhile learned that the United States Aid for International Development had appealed to the United States government to fund what they said was 618 health care facilities 
facilities in various parts of Afghanistan, which they said they were helping to support. But when the person, uh, his name is John Sapko, a very interesting character, when he began to investigate the coordinates called in for those healthcare facilities, he raised many questions because six of them were in fact located in Pakistan. Six of the coordinates were in Tajikistan, a country just to the north of Afghanistan, and one was in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And so as his team began to use Google Earth, basically, spatial imaging, to find out where are these places, they said, hey, 80% of these locations are questionable. And in 189 of these locations, there's not a building in sight for 400 yards. So what was there? And even John Sepko, in charge of this kind of investigation, started to wonder, are these ghost hospitals? Are they ghost healthcare facilities? And if the money was paid, where did it go? And the same happens with the schools. Uh, our National Public Radio had an, an expose not too long ago about schools that don't really exist. People get paid as teachers or um, administrators, and they file reports about numbers of students, but none of it really exists. And the same is even true within the military, ghost soldiers. So there's been tremendous corruption, and also um, during the surge years, when there were as many as 100,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan, the Taliban would work it out so that if they weren't paid protection money, basically, they would attack the convoys, bringing supplies to the United States bases and forward operating bases. So in a sense, the huge amounts of money the United States was pouring into Afghanistan were either lining the pockets of Taliban commanders or sometimes drug lords and uh, corrupt officials such that average, ordinary Afghan people had very, very few choices but to knuckle under and obey whoever the corrupt warlord was that was dominating their area. And, of course, the most fierce and the most highly recognized of any of those warlords was the United States military. And in between visiting another couple of countries... It's your work at home as well, your anti-war work at home. Well, this is certainly where we need especially to be reaching out to people through education, education, education. And sometimes, I know it may sound odd, but sometimes by going before an actual court, before a judge, but then also going before the court of public opinion, you can raise some of the most crucial issues and help people in this country understand that while we're pouring our money into the military-industrial complex and the prison-industrial complex, we don't have the resources that are needed, so desperately needed, to cope with climate change and global warming and poverty in this country and abroad. So we we do do a lot of walks, uh, long walks, from symbolic starting and ending points and reach out to people all along the way. Buddy Bell, my colleague here, is assiduously now planning a walk from Chicago this summer to, well, actually in late May, that will go to a prison, uh, a supermax prison under construction. It'll be about a 13-day walk. And this prison might become a new Guantanamo. We're not sure, but it was rumored that detainees in Guantanamo would be sent to this prison that's now being kind of rehabilitated into a, a, a supermax prison. And prisoners that go to supermax prisons are kept 
in conditions of solitary confinement for 23 out of the 24 hours in a day. They're very excruciatingly difficult places where no one ought to be sentenced to live. Um, we also have tried hard to go to the places where drone operators are trained and then uh, engage in operating weaponized drones, predator drones, reaper drones, or surveillance drones like the shadow drone over other countries. And often if we go to those bases, we're arrested and put on trial and sometimes held in jail before we go before a judge. I did three months in prison last year at this time for having gone to just such a base in a state called Missouri. Uh, very recently, last week, uh, my friend Brian Terrell and I, uh, Brian's also a co-coordinator for Voices for Creative Nonviolence, traveled with Buddy Bell and several others in support of our plan, and we tried to deliver a loaf of bread to the Vogue airfield where shadow drones are being operated, and we were arrested. And now we're charged with disturbing the peace because they say we disrupted traffic, but there wasn't a car in sight. We have it on video. You can see a little rabbit scurry across the road. Um, but they, the authorities get so agitated, they sometimes make things up, quite honestly. And uh, we do so admire people all across the United States who are maintaining very strong vigils and actions to protest drone warfare. Um, almost too many to name in a, in a short conversation, but uh, I would want you to be assured that people are doing their best to draw attention to the insatiable greed of the companies manufacturing and proliferating these new generations of 21st century military weapons. Plenty more work for many people to do. Oh, yes, there's so much uh, that remains to the next generations, you know. I feel that uh, trouble because many times the younger generations are so saddled with debts because of the high prices for obtaining uh, a university education, and there aren't very many prosperous jobs available to young people these days, and so, so some can start to feel disheartened, but I have been very excited to see communities forming that are dedicated to very simple living. I think of one community, the uh, Possibility Alliance, they call themselves, and they've gone off the grid completely. They live with no electricity, and they bicycle everywhere and engage in organic farming in, in Missouri, that state that I mentioned before. And there are many, many young people who are embracing the works of um, people like Dorothy Day, who uh, helped found the Catholic Worker Movement, and are doing their best to serve neighbors in need and to share their resources and live simply and uh, prefer service to domination. I think there are many people who have been inspired, for instance, by Pope Francis and his travels and his insistence that when he travels to another country, he gets to know the circumstances of the people that are the poorest, the neediest, the those who are most oppressed. So I think that the work is challenging, and the circumstances are very tense. You know, here in the United States, we look at the culture that surrounds someone like Donald Trump, and we start to wonder, are we tilting very dangerously toward the kinds of fascist groups that historically developed uh, in the build-up to World War II? So we know that we have to take these things quite seriously. It's no laughing matter, uh, even though notorious statements are made. And we know that it's crucial to cross borders, to work internationally and also to 
try to make sure that our organizing is interracial and intergenerational. It requires a lot of thought, good writing, good teaching, good outreach, and listening listening carefully to what we can learn from others, both in the past and in other parts of the world. Thank you so much, Kathy. Well, thank you, Jan, for this ample time to talk with you. And that is U.S. peace activist, pacifist, author, all-round good person, Kathy Kelly, speaking from Chicago. This is 3CR. The time is 4.39, just coming up to 4.40. I'm Jermaine Greer, and you're listening to 3CR, Treaty Now. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. Ahoy there, shipmates! This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah! 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 That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. As listeners are aware, we are celebrating our 40th birthday here at 3CR. 40 years of giving a voice to issues that would otherwise go unheard and to address the distortions of the truth in many of the mainstream media. As part of the celebrations, which are ongoing throughout the year, this Friday is the book launch of Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. Many people have been involved in the project, which has been overseen by 3CR's project coordinator, Juliet Fox. And I asked Juliet first who had the idea for a book. Goodness me, I'm not quite sure whose initial idea it was, but certainly in September 2013, Marion, our station manager, myself, Rachel, Kirby, our volunteers coordinator, and Ian McIntyre, actually, we all sat down and had a discussion about doing a book for 3CR's 40th, what that might entail, who might be able to do it, what sort of numbers we might get. It was a very much an initial conversation and there had been many conversations between Marion and I prior to that. It seemed like a good opportunity, the 40th anniversary, to do a book. And then the task of how to represent 40 years of radio in possibly three or 400 pages. Was deemed to be impossible. And so we are not presenting this book as a representation of the station because really that is an absolute impossible task. We have sought to provide a snapshot of the station with a lot of diversity in it, with a multiplicity of voices in it and a whole lot of people engaged in it. But it's not a history and it's not a truthful representation or some kind of 
one version of 3CR. There was a, a book working group and then you engaged a great number of volunteers to assist. How did that go? So yes, we set up a book working group. It was a group of nine people and we first met in September of 2014. So the people on the book working group were Nancy Atkin, who brought a lot of historical knowledge to the project and made a really significant contribution to it. Sam Sauwine, who's been a previous programmer and committee of management person, We had Claire Land, who recently wrote a book, and listeners would know her as a programmer with Fire First. Libby Jamison, who's a previous station manager. Lucy DeCretzer, who's also a previous programmer and ended up being one of our chapter coordinators, which I'll explain in a minute. We also had Dennis Evans, who also listeners would know as a a significant unionist within Melbourne and also programmer at 3CR. Pilar Aguilera, also a former staff member, programmer, and also with a huge amount of book experience. So she was instrumental to making it happen. And Rachel Kirby, who did our book design and other listeners would know her also as our volunteers coordinator. So that was the core team. And and our responsibility was to oversee the project. So as I say, we first met in September of 2014. And what we tried to do is go through all the different cram guides as a starter because listeners would know that 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 as the station newsletter holds a lot of information, to go through that and try and map out some kind of framework for the book. It had to be realistic. We were never going to, as I said before, we were never going to do a full representation of the station. We were never going to write the history of the once and for all of the station. But we tried to give it some kind of a framework. So we broke it up into decades. So the book is broken up into five chapters, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010. And we gave each chapter a, a structure. So it has three people that are profiled, three programs that are profiled, three kind of special broadcasts that are profiled, a music piece, a technical piece, an introduction and a conclusion. So we set the framework and then we put out a call and it was to a a select group of writers who again were connected to the station for people to put in an expression of interest to be one of the chapter coordinators. And again, we weren't looking for five writers because that was too limited. We wanted more voices than that. So we called those people coordinators and it was their role to pull together those pieces. But sometimes that might be going to that person and actually asking them to write it. So we do have a few pieces in the book that are written in the first person. And if it wasn't them writing them in the first person, it was really closely collaborating with people to do their profile of their show with them. And when we did that big map, I suppose, of who might be profiled and what shows, we did try and have a clear idea about the diversity that was represented there. Again, not with the idea that it was then representative, but that it at least attempted to look at the diversity within the station over that period of time. So by the end of 2014, so December 2014, we'd had our expressions of interest and we'd chosen our five chapter coordinators. Arij Noor, who listeners might know as a Women on the Line producer-presenter, she did the 2010s. Lou Smith, also a writer, a Melbourne writer and previous programmer at the station, did the 2000s. Jenny Denton, who's a great freelance journalist and also an Earth Matters producer in the past, did the 1990s. 
Lucy de Kretzer, programmer and historian, did the 1980s and I took on the 1970s because I had already started research in that area as part of my study. That sounds all very compartmentalised, but you've got to realise the issues that just every decade carried CR. We did compartmentalise it a little bit just in order to actually get it done. But I suppose particularly in the overview in each section, we really tried to also go, okay, well, we actually really need to deal with some of the key issues that we can see. Even if there isn't then a program profile on that, it needs to be in the mix as well, which is not to say that everything's there. It's really, really not. And we're very aware of that. But we tried to allow those additional issues to come into play in the kind of overview that starts each chapter. Just talk about some of those big issues, the big campaigns, the big successes that CR's been involved with that you've profiled in the book. Yeah, so some of the key ones would be, not surprising to listeners, the maritime dispute in the 1990s. We also have a profile on the Franklin Dam broadcast in the 1980s. So there's a whole range of different key broadcasts that took place and key campaigns that were covered. Richmond Secondary College, Northlands Secondary College um, closures, There's a a great piece on campaign and the role that the station played, not only in covering that as an issue and really dedicating some solid airtime to it, but also being able to be part of that campaign, being able to put the word out, being able to explain to people what the key issues are that weren't being covered in the mainstream and getting people to either the rallies or down on the docks or wherever that might be. Did you also cover the issues where... See, I was threatened all the time with losing your licence or your licence is not going to be renewed for a couple of years because we tackled all those hard issues that other media wouldn't touch and that on the left were so important. We do touch on that a bit, particularly in the 1970s, which is probably when it reached a particular peak with regard to the complaints that were made against the station by the Victorian Board of Jewish Deputies and the Australian Broadcasting Tribunal that was set up but actually didn't take place. Yeah, that very much deals with the coverage that the station gave very early on to the Palestinian issue and the absolute criticism and hammering that we had and how close we really did come to losing our licence at that time. And also the fact that CR has been welcoming to so many groups over those years, not only the newly arrived migrants or immigrants or whatever, but as it says in our preamble, we're there for the people who haven't got a voice anywhere else. And that shows out in the book? It does, yeah. We've got a great piece written in the first person by Dalal Smiley, who was a programmer with Voice of Arabic Women, and about, you know, her personal experience of being able to have a voice within the media to be able to deal with the issues in her community that were absolutely not represented within the broader media and for her and her community to have that opportunity to voice those issues and discuss them and seek solutions. Um, There's also a great piece on the Eritrean show that remains on air today and just showcasing the importance of their show and not just having 
maybe a short segment within someone else's show, but having their show on a weekly basis that is completely run and controlled by them. And also the Aboriginal communities have always had a voice and many voices here on 3CR. And I can remember when 3KND was brought into operation and people thought, well, they're all going to move over to 3KND and we'll have no Aboriginal broadcasting or very few left. But that didn't happen because of the importance of 3CR to the Aboriginal community. That's right. And we certainly have a great showcase of the different people and programs and special broadcasts that um, have featured on the station over the years. There's a piece on the, I believe that you're mentioned in various ones, Jan, but there is a a piece on the 1988 anti-bicentennial celebrations that the station had both at the pool here in Fitzroy, but also in doing live coverage from the Sydney protests. That's a a great overview, particularly for people who might not be aware of 3CR's role in those broadcasts at that time. We've also got some features on some um, some of our Aboriginal programmers from over the years and a piece on Beyond the Bars, which is our prison programming during NAIDOC week that this year is 15 years old. So yes, it's a very important aspect of the station and remains so and it it certainly gets a, a good hearing in the book. It's also important to acknowledge that even though CR is seen as or heard as a, a spoken word program, there are various music programs who have been here, many of them right from the word go. That's right and I think that that's why the book working group right from early on went, okay, we need to really dedicate some time to music. So each chapter has a dedicated section on music from that era. And again, it's a couple of pages, people, so bear with us. It can't cover everything, but at least we were able to dedicate a particular section of the book for each chapter. And of course, there's also programs and people who are music programmers or music shows within the other sections of the book. It's really important that music... And the role that 3CR took on in terms of the type of music, the type of musicians, the bands that it has enabled to have airtime, it was really important that we dedicated some space in the book for that. Have you also included stories of people who have passed on but were nevertheless very important to the station? We certainly have, and it was kind of sad to look at how many people we have lost, particularly in recent years, who have made such an amazing contribution to the station. We have a piece written by Kevin Healy on Bill Hartley, and we also have a piece on Lisa Belair, who made a fantastic contribution to the station over a really long period of time through different programs, such as Not Another Curry Show. So, yeah, it was a bit sad to see how many people we'd lost over the years, but also to acknowledge their great contribution. And I'd imagine just looking through the cram guides over all those years, the the faces and the names of people and thinking, I wonder who that one is. It is just so extraordinary how much information is literally even just upstairs in, in the meeting room. It was very overwhelming to look at the number of people, the number of issues. This book could have been written in a million different ways and it could have featured an absolute, a completely different set of people, programs and special broadcasts and be just as full 
as it is now. So, yes, it was a very daunting task in lots of ways, but we we really just went, we have to do this, and so we, we, ha- we made some hard decisions along the way. You mentioned before being under the gun with the Zionist movements in Australia for our licence renewals. There's also the ASIO files, and a number, a great number of people who've worked at 3CR in those years have that file. During this, the process of, of making the book, we also accessed 3CR's ASIO files, or I did as a researcher, because you generally need to have some kind of pertinent reason to access these files. It did take 18 months to access the files, and they do not form or inform the book really at all. But we will have the full set of ASIO files at the book launch for people to read quietly in the corner if they like, and they are all also online. And to be honest, I think that there's possibly another book in the content of the 3CR ASIO files. I have looked through all of them, but I'm very aware that you need a lot of knowledge to understand what the content is and I think that there are people around who have that knowledge and I think it would be really interesting to look into them more deeply and perhaps create something else around that. But it's also, you know, an amazing indication of the power that community radio has and the the political interest that it creates from the powers that be. This is a set of files that's around 2,000 pages and I do not imagine at all that that's everything. I think that the process of accessing files and receiving what ASIO has, in inverted commas, is very haphazard and I don't believe at all that what we have is what they necessarily collected. And I'm certainly aware that these are old files and of course there would be no reason to think that that level of spying has stopped. Your personal reflections on what it's been like this last couple of years and putting this tribute together for the people at CR and for their listeners and for the general public, it's been a part of many people working together. It's been fantastic. It has been a real honour to work with the Book Working Group. I should have also mentioned that we also had a Brains Trust of around 40 to 50 people who, again, were people who were associated with the station who were asked to come on board as part of the book project as people we could maybe go to and go, hey, who is this person in this photo? Or what actually happened at that particular incident? So that was a really great contribution that they made as well. So there were so many people involved and everyone worked really hard to make it happen, which is not to say there weren't, you know, contentious issues along the way, but we worked through them. So it was an absolute pleasure and I can't quite believe that we now have a book that is designed by Rachel Kirby and it it looks just fantastic. It's got 180 images, it's 300 pages long and I highly recommend it. (laughs) And now we look forward to the book launch. That's right. So we'll have a book launch on the 6th of May, Friday the 6th of May at Bella Union Trades Hall starting at 6pm. We'll have a few speakers on the night. Jan, I believe that you will be one of them. Our speakers will be very brief and the idea is that people are able to come along, perhaps catch up with people that they haven't caught up with for a long time, 
hopefully celebrate the great contribution that they have made to the station, whether they're in the book or not, and buy a copy of the book as well. And if people can't get to the opening, well, the book is here. It can be sent out. That's right. Um, We'll be selling the book after the launch from here at the station at 21 Smith Street. And we'll also be selling it online through our 3CR shop, which is at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Yeah, we can mail it out or you can drop by the station during business hours and pick it up after the launch. I think all I can say is congratulations, Juliet. Thanks, Jan, and thanks for your contribution to it. And special thanks to Juliet for the, the wonderful work that she's put into this over the last few years, and that's Juliet Fox, the Special Projects Coordinator here at 3CR. And I'm hoping that what you've heard from Juliet will encourage you to come along on Friday evening. And here's just one more encouragement. Hey, join us for the launch of 3CR's 40th anniversary book, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. The book tells the story of 3CR's contribution to Australian cultural and political life and will be launched at Bella Union Bar at Trades Hall on Friday the 6th of May at 6pm. The evening includes speakers, revolutionary drinks, nibbles and the opportunity to get your copy of Radical Radio celebrating 40 years of 3CR. RSVP at 3crbooklaunch.eventbrite.com.au Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Dr Tim Anderson from Sydney University, a member of Hands Off Syria, has recently returned from that country. I asked him first where he went, who we spoke to. I went mainly to promote my book, The Dirty War on Syria, and... It just so happened that I was there during the uh, Congress and elections in Syria. I went to, mainly to Damascus, but I also went to Palmyra, newly liberated Palmyra and Suwaita in the south. Just talk about the elections first. There was Congress elections according to law, according to the Constitution. That is to say the last ones were four years earlier in 2012, also during the conflict. These ones were notable for a a bigger range of candidates. There were quite a lot of independent candidates and new parties that had sprung up um, in recent times despite the war. And so there was more enthusiasm for them than there had been in 2012. Participation rate in 2012 was about 51.5% and this time it was about 57 point something percent. So not as much enthusiasm as there is for presidential elections and that's a common feature of all presidential systems you know the presidential participation rate 
two years ago was 73% there, so 57% now for Congress. So it resulted in the election of more women, for example, and a number of non-Baathist candidates, although the Baathist Party is still the dominant party in, in the Syrian parliament. Palmyra, is that recently been liberated? Palmyra, yes, it was liberated at the end of, in, on March the 28th. Um, it was um, about 10 months held by ISIS and a lot of lives were lost in when ISIS took Palmyra and a lot of lives were lost when the Syrian army took it back from ISIS. All this time, the US, with its supposed anti-ISIS coalition, was playing a background role facilitating the ISIS takeover of Palmyra and doing nothing effectively when it was taken back by the Syrian army, of course, backed by a number of militia, regional militia and the Russian Air Force. What were the casualties there over that period? When ISIS took over Palmyra in May of last year, there were something like in excess of 150 Syrian soldiers killed and they murdered a lot of civilians. We were shown around the, um, the, the city and um, to some extent the historic sites, although some of them were still off limits then because they were still demining, Russians were there demining. We heard 30 explosions when we were in the two hours that we were there with mines being set off. But there was a fountain outside the, the, the historic site area which probably used to be a beautiful place. It still has a contraption that ISIS put up, a steel and wire contraption where they'd cut people's throats hang them upside down and bleed them into the fountain. So the government so far had left that there as a sort of a reminder of the, the atrocities. And also around the museum and the historic site, you could see a lot of the mutilation of antiquities, ancient statues that had heads, and the head, particularly the heads and faces had been damaged. So it was pretty raw still. It had only been over two weeks before they'd taken it back. And the Syrians had lost over 200 soldiers in taking it back from ISIS. They say that ISIS itself had lost around 400 fighters, but then they used all of their U.S. vehicles and U.S. weapons and stripped a hold of the facilities like the hospital and other facilities and took things back east to their bases in, um, in Raqqa and Derizor. Is it possible for people to return? Yeah, um, when I was there, something like around 200 people had returned to Palmyra, but it was a city of 100,000 at one stage and with industries and you know water supply and a whole range of things. So the demining was, was slowing any return at that time. There is, by the way, a much general, a much more general um, uh, return of, of displaced people in Syria. When we were there, the International Organization of Migration was talking about 1.7 million people going back to the liberated areas because with the advances of the Russians and the Syrians together and Iran and Hezbollah in that six-month period since the end of September last year, they say that more than 400 villages have been liberated, as well as cities like Palmyra and smaller cities. So there has been a reversal to some extent in the, um, in the refugee tide from the war there. And how many areas need to be liberated? Well, the major focus at the moment is Aleppo. What is actually happening there? In Aleppo, um, there's an offensive by the Syrian army to take back the entire city. Basically, the, the al-Qaeda groups have occupied a part of the city. I can't say exactly how much, but something like a quarter or a little bit more than a quarter of the city, in mainly in the eastern side of Aleppo, for several years, at least since 2012, when all of those new flood of reinforcements came across from Turkey. So 
those groups have embedded themselves in parts of the eastern part of the city for a long time. And really there was, on the one hand, a counter-offensive um, supported by Turkey and an offensive planned by the Syrian army. So that's why even during this ceasefire period, which had some impact in areas like the northeastern Damascus countryside, that when I was there in the middle of last month, there was no mortars coming in. There hadn't been any mortars coming into Damascus for 40 days. But the situation was completely different in Aleppo, where there was a counter-offensive by the al-Qaeda groups and the Syrian army was and is in the process of going in to clean out those, those areas of the city. So that's one of the major objectives at the moment. Of course, after that, they're still consolidating their control in the areas around Palmyra and gradually getting set for the push into Derizu, which is the main oil and gas area at the moment. And after that, Raqqa, which is the, the capital, effectively, of, of ISIS in Syria. There are claims that the Syrian army or the Russians bombed the Medicine Sans Frontieres hospital and has killed many people. Have you been able to confirm that? I've just been looking into that one. There's been a number of hospitals bombed. There's one, a large one in Aleppo, which was mortared by the Al-Qaeda groups, and there's a lot of video of that happening. The hospital that they call Al-Quds Hospital, which is not really a formal hospital, but it's a makeshift, but, you know, medium-sized clinic set up in the occupied areas, occupied by uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, was indeed bombed. There's some controversy about who was behind it. The Russians have blamed the US coalition, which has also been bombing parts of Aleppo. The US is blaming the Russians. But one thing is pretty clear from what I've been looking at is that it was taken over by the al-Qaeda groups and the people who were there, including the MSF personnel, were effectively only treating Jabhat al-Nusra people and their families. So it's happening on both sides effectively. And generally speaking, of course, the civilian targets and hospitals are protected under international humanitarian law. But there is an exception, and the exception has to do with to what extent they're embedded in, uh, in military uh, support, basically. So the military support, that's certainly the way the Syrian army sees it. They say that we don't recognise any makeshift hospitals, even if they're medium-sized makeshift hospitals run by outside bodies with warning which is required under international law they they have attacked them in the past but we should remember that most of the attacks on hospitals in the last five years in syria have been precisely by the the armed groups armed by by nato and saudi arabia is it true that groups like medicines on frontier have to have the permission of the the government in that country before they bring in their hospitals yes not anyone medicines on frontier which, yeah. or anyone has to get permission of, of a government a health a health department or ministry of, of any government to, to set up a hospital like that. To set up a hospital, you imagine if you or I tried to set up a hospital for an al-Qaeda group in Australia and then demanded that the, the, you know, the security forces don't do anything about it, then they must uh, keep their hands off it. It just doesn't happen in any country. In, under US law, by the way, it's a specific offence to provide medical treatment, even for an individual doctor, to provide medical treatment for members of a designated terrorist group and these groups in Syria these days are all of the major groups are either members of designated terrorist groups or fighting with them. The two biggest Syrian Salafi groups have been coordinating with Jabhat al-Nusra for, for some years. What's happening with the peace agreement that was signed in February? What has it meant and what is it meant to achieve? Well an end to the war basically and, and that's what the Security Council was set up for too. 
But um, in this case, the talks that have been going on in Geneva have they managed to secure a ceasefire which had some substantial impact in Syria. That is to say, in certain areas, there's been the cessation of hostilities. There's also been type of amnesties for a large number of small groups or people collab or individuals collaborating with the armed groups. So to that extent, it's succeeding with the force of the fact that the Syrian army and its allies are effectively prevailing in the battlefield. That encourages, you know, the defection or the surrender of, of groups. So that's been happening to a fair degree. But the ones that are embedded and supported by Turkey in the north of, uh, of Syria, in particularly around Aleppo, and also in in the eastern part of Syria, they're out of the agreement. That, that is to say, the UN Security Council agreement does not countenance any type of ceasefire with ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra, for example, or groups associated with them. And the Syrians and the Russians have been saying for a long time that, that all of these major groups are associated with either one or, or both of those. So that's still a valuable process there because basically everyone wants the war to end. I mean... Um, I noticed it just walking around Damascus, there's significant more relaxation of people walking around because they'd had, for the first time in three or four years, no mortars falling for 40 days, you know, so that really had an impact on the atmosphere there, basically. But I think the one thing that outside expectations are fooled about is that this process in Geneva is going to create some new Syrian government. That's simply not going to happen. Uh, you know, the, the demands are intransigent. The, the Al-Qaeda groups demands that the Syrian government surrenders, and, you know, despite what, whatever Syrian people think, and hand over the country to them. The U.S. is effectively saying the same thing. You know, Assad must go, this sort of stuff. It's completely undemocratic. It has no basis in, in the U.N. resolutions. So their expectations are still overly high, really, about having a say in the future of, of Syria. They, if they can't win with their proxy armies on the ground, they're not going to get a surrender from Syria in Geneva, basically. And that's maybe that's an illusion which is helping prolong the war. I'm, 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 I fear that. And the additional US troops in Syria, that violates the society of Syria as well and also international law because they're not asked there and, and you've got a peace process where foreign troops are coming in. That's right, yeah. It's a, and where are they? It's effectively an invasion. They're in the far northeast, and they're running a manoeuvre trying to work on the Kurdish factor there, which is, or the Kurdish separatist, separatist factor, which they have indeed done to a fair degree in Iraq. Remember, they've got an agreement with the Iraqi Kurds. Baghdad doesn't like it. It's a type of beginning to balkanise the country. Those Iraqi Kurds have got an agreement with the Turkish government, which is killing their, their brothers and sisters in, in Turkey and in Syria. So it's a strange sort of situation there. but it, And it's very dangerous because having even a small amount of, a relatively small amount of US troops invading Syria at this time means that there's a chance of them becoming casualties of a conflict and then, you know, an elephant which gets hurt can, can create a lot of damage. So the problem is it could be the, the focus of some provocation in the future. I think that's the danger of that. But I think what they're trying to do strategically is to try and keep a foothold within Syrian territory using the Kurdish factor as they have in Iraq. Is this the Kurdish corridor? Well, whatever you call it, you know, um, no-fly zone or whatever, it it's, it's, seems to be an aggression whose aim is to try and partition or balkanise, if only to some limited extent, the countries that they've, in, they've invaded, like Iraq and Syria. 
But I'd imagine the PKK aren't included in this. The Turkish Kurds, you mean? Yes. No, no, of course, it's, there's a different situation in all of those three countries or four countries if we, if we include Iran. And indeed, the YPG, the Syrian, the main Syrian Kurdish militia, has got most of its support in recent times from the Syrian army, most of its arms from the Syrian army. But some of them are playing a double game where they want support from the Americans as well, basically. So, I mean, Turkey's the worst enemy of the Kurds in many respects there, but they have their illusions about some sort of a strategy where they can carve territory out of all of those different states. What about the role of Israel at the moment? They've stopped a, a convoy or a, a huge supply of weapons and ammunitions getting through. From Israel? From Israel, yeah. What are the people in Syria thinking about? Well, Israel, Israel's the traditional enemy of, of Syria, basically, in the Syrians' uh, uh, policy for many decades. There's still a effective state of war against Israel there. Israel occupies Syrian territory. There are more than 40,000 Syrians held for over four decades in the, the occupied Golan Heights, and um, Israel has carried out missile attacks on Syria over the last five years. That's been contained to some extent by Russian diplomacy, really. The Russians have had some sort of agreement with Israel where they're trying to limit the enemies of, that they're fighting in Syria. They're trying to limit it to ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra, which means basically most of the, of the armed groups in Syria. But they've tried to exclude the surrounding players of Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Israel. It hasn't worked really with Turkey, you know, because of the, the conflict that we know about between Russia and Turkey, but it has worked to a degree with Israel and also... Remember, Russia has the most advanced anti-air technology now, um, the S-400 system in Syria, to protect their own forces. So there haven't been, there's only been, I think, one Israeli airstrike on on Syria since the Russians um, got more deeply involved six months ago. Talk a bit more about your time there, Tim, and your freedom of movement, where you went. In Syria, you have to really... The whole country is a war zone and you have to take security advice from Syrians and that includes the Syrian army, of course. So, But what was happening when I was there during the elections was that, that that whole week of the elections, really, and before and after, the Ministry of uh, Communications was taking journalists out to visit Palmyra uh, to showcase it effectively. Normally they don't want they don't want to take pictures of military checkpoints or other sorts of military sites and so on and you need a certain amount of security depending on where you go, although for at least a year, all of the all of the western cities have been accessible. I've travelled to the north and south of the country and all those western cities. I didn't go into Aleppo, but but you need some security, and that means some sort of government agency to sort of authorise you to pass into areas which are more uh, suspect. So the two busloads of journalists with which I travelled to Palmyra last month had an escort of a bus of Syrian soldiers, and all the way along the line, of course, there were military checkpoints, intelligence checkpoints, and so on. So on this occasion, they were showing off their victory, their achievement in liberating that very historic place at the, at the heart of, of Syria with thousands of years of history. In terms of travelling to other areas, uh, it's, um, Homs is relatively safe these days. I mean, any place can be subject to a, a suicide bomb or car bomb. That's, what, that's the tactic they've been using for five years. But um, Homs um, is held. Sweda has never has never fallen. The coastal areas, Tartus and Latakia, are, are pretty much secure, except just around the, the Turkish border there. The major sore point there, really, in Syria has been the role of Turkey and Turkey allowing 
such a lot of um, terrorists and terrorist groups across with military support from that NATO member. So, you know, the entire northern part of Syria there is, has always got that, that risk, so it's not really accessible until it gets cleaned up. Where did the journalists come from who went to Palmyra? Because I know you and other people have complained bitterly about the lack of journalists in Syria. That's true. The, um, the US, I mean, they were coming from all different countries, um, but there was no US journalists there, strangely enough. You know, the, the US itself, the government, played down the liberation of Palmyra. They didn't want to accept that the Syrians had, the Syrian army had, in fact, carried out this operation. While they had done nothing, so they dissembled in all sorts of ways to try and prevent talking about it. But strangely enough, I haven't seen any individual US journalists reporting from Palmyra, whereas there's been a number of British journalists. Some of them were quite good reports, surprisingly good reports, actually, because of that sort of separate link that a lot of journalists and writers have to Palmyra and its, um, its antiquities, its history, you know. But um, strange that the individual US journalists aren't really getting in there. There have been some that have gone to Syria. There was one last year who did a strange sort of report, but he did indeed go and talk to people in the streets in quite a few different areas. But there seems to be a great self-censorship of US journalists in particular in wanting to be in Syria, or maybe their government intimidates them from, from going there. But um, I remember almost three years ago, um, the, the woman in charge of giving visas to foreign journalists at the Ministry of Communications were saying, where are they? How come they're not coming here, you know? But so Europeans are there, Russian, of course, Syrian journalists. Syrian journalists are really, there's quite a, a flourishing of independent media and, and um, a wider sort of um, Syrian media than there was, say, 10 years ago in Syria. It's interesting to see the new TV channels and so on have sprung up quite a lot of private ones as well as public initiatives. Talk a little bit more about the changes from the last time you were there. Well, the last time I was there was July last year, which was in the middle of summer. Summer's really hot in Syria. The deserts are very, very dry. It was spring last month and it was green in a lot of areas. There was a blush of green across a lot of the desert and a lot more. It was a little bit um, symbolic for me because, as I said, in Damascus there was, which is an amazing city, it's always a tremendous city to visit Damascus, Tremendous history, um, tremendous diversity of cultures there. There was more relaxed air with this, with spring, and it was like a Damascus, another Damascus spring, because there was this sort of hope in the air. Um, economically, things are not good. They don't seem to be worse than they were last year. Things were very bad last year economically, and there was a lot of blackouts, for example. Even though the situation in Damascus is better than elsewhere in terms of fuel, there's rationing of fuel. But salaries are very low, prices are very high. Now, last month, there were much less blackouts than there were last year. So to some extent, the, the, the electricity situation, the power situation has come back under control. That's very important in a country like Syria because it has extremes of, of heat and cold. You know, it's, it's quite cold in winter and it's, um, it snows in winter and it's extremely hot in summer. So even poor little apartments in the cities have air conditioning, they need air conditioning uh, in, in winter they need some sort of heating so the whole power situation is important and that seemed to be improving gradually but there is this impact of the, the economic blockade on Syria by the US and, and Europe and um, most of Europe and our country Australia which has made things hard to get including a lot of essential things and hospital equipment and so on, a lot of very important things. That's definitely impacting 
the wider population those sanctions, that economic blockade. Children able to go to school? Children have been going to school all through this crisis um, and the schools haven't been immune from the mortars. Um, They've been hit constantly by mortars from particularly the the group that is still embedded in the northeast countryside of Damascus there. Um, I remember there was a headline in a newspaper almost three years ago which said, great victory over terrorism, four million children go to school. I remember thinking, isn't that a strange sort of headline to talk about children going to school as a victory over terrorism? But indeed, it's part of everyday life that the Syrians have committed themselves to, to keep going, and even though they've got used to these appalling things of, you know, mortars landing in a schoolyard and killing and killing children. That's been a daily occurrence, you know. We don't see it because the Western media says, oh, here, you know, the Assad government is bombing a hospital or something like that. They don't talk about the daily bombing of the cities that sending in of these homemade mortars in gas canisters, they call them hell cannons, and they're extremely inaccurate things, and you shoot them into a city, or as was happening in Aleppo last week, they said something like 2,000 of those mortars were just lobbed into the city with there's even video people saying you know hit any of them you know because they all support the regime daily life goes on and school goes on and the hospitals have been under attack generally for five years also not just in the last week but the public health system goes on there's a program for example with cuba to try and fill the gap of all the pharmaceuticals that syria no longer produces syria used to be self-sufficient in most of its, uh, 95% of its medicines, and now that's gone backwards because the pharmaceutical factories, particularly in Aleppo, have been damaged. They've been hit deliberately by the armed groups, and the hospitals have been sabotaged over over years. You know, So there, are, there is international collaboration with Cuba and also Russia to, to try and fill the gap of the medicines that they're missing there. But there's still a, a strong, free public health system going on as well. You say that the terrorists have got a foothold in the northeast area of Damascus. How big is Damascus and why can't they be rooted out? Yes, I was surprised when I first went there almost three years ago, two and a half years ago, uh, for the first time to see that there was, at that time, they said there was something like 40,000 in the terrorist groups in northeast countryside Damascus, around focused around a place called Duma. So it's not actually in Damascus, it's out of Damascus? Yeah, it's out of Damascus city in the countryside. There's a green belt they call the, the Ghouta, and the east Ghouta, east of Damascus, is the sort of the, the green belt with agricultural area. And there are some conservative communities that support them. Obviously, these groups don't get a root in the area unless they have some collaborators, but they also um, kick people out of their homes too. So in that area, there was... Back then, there was said to be around 40,000. And what happened, they would tunnel in, they would get into the, the outer suburb and sometimes into some of the inner suburbs and lob mortars into the centre of Damascus. And that process has been going on for a very long time. And even when they were expelled from certain areas, they would come back and all you need is a few snipers to be in an area and, and the whole main street of a, of a suburb, for example, would, would freeze because you know people couldn't go out in the street because there were snipers there. Then the army would come in you'd have a confrontation. So even small groups would constantly infiltrate. Uh, and so you know, the countermeasure to that is that the Syrian intelligence has got to look at sleeper cells and look at collaborators and so on. So there is that internal side to it as well. But their arms have always come through Saudi Arabia and Turkey. They're American arms, basically. That, that's what's been behind it the whole time. Now, in Aleppo, you've, got, you've had a similar sort of similar type of occupation. You had thousands of um, 
in Aleppo there a lot more foreigners too. The ones foreigners coming from um, from Europe and everywhere else, from Chechnya, from North Africa, and so on, through Turkey to occupy those parts of eastern Aleppo which are under attack today. How was your book received? Ah, uh, the book was received very well, um, but. Arabic is so strong there that not a lot of people can read it. I did interviews um, in Arabic and English there, not my Arabic, but you know, translated. There's a lot of interest there, and one thing I did was finalise a contract with a Syrian group to publish the book, so the Arabic version hopefully will be out in June sometime. So there, there's a lot of interest, but the, the book wasn't written for a Syrian audience, it was written for a Western audience, but they find, as I've found this in other cases in Crossing Cultures, that often they see something in it that you're not, thinking about at the time that they're they are interested for example how is an australian's writing a book like this you know this is really good but why did an australian write this book you know so you get some funny reactions like that but there, there's a lot of interest i did a lot of media interviews i just give it a bit of a plug tim the theme of the book the theme of the book is it's about the the dirty war on syria it's called the dirty war on syria washington regime change and resistance and it's trying to document the history of the conflict um with a view to both stories, the a, what I call the A story, which is what's actually been happening in, in the Syrian conflict, and the B story, which is largely the Western myths, the type of war propaganda that's tried to prop up the legitimacy of this war over the last five years. But it's also, uh, we publish, we're publishing it here now as a, as a paperback, and in Canada they're, they're starting to publish it too as a paperback. So it's in bookstores? It's not in bookstores yet, no. It will be, though? It will be, yeah. Okay, Tim, thank you. Thanks, Jan. Bye. And that's Dr Tim Anderson. I spoke with Tim this morning. He's a senior lecturer in political economy at Sydney University and also a member of Hands Off Syria. And look out for the book. Are you a book reader and collector? Could any of your books find a new home? Why not donate unused books to the upcoming Big Red Book Fair? This year, the book fair is on Saturday the 25th of June at Trades Hall from 10 till 4. If you have books to donate, please contact the New International Bookshop today on 03 9662 That's 03 9662 Or go to our website, newinternationalbookshop.org.au, a 3CR supporter. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. In Australia, more and more voices are being raised about the inhumane treatment of refugees on Manus and Nauru. And today, yet another young person has set herself afire on Nauru. Yesterday, I spoke to Peter Murphy. Can I just ask you just first to identify the group that you are representing today? I'm involved with a group called Australian Supporters of Democracy in Iran. We organised this in 2004. So it's already 12 years um, that we've been working to follow through, really, from our protest against the invasion of Iraq. The issue today is the, the tragic death of a young Iranian refugee. 
Yes, everyone, I think, was shocked last week when uh, they saw images of Hamid. name is Hamid Masumali, on fire at, at Nauru. It was just a, um, a handheld mobile phone uh, video image, so it's a little indistinct, um, but still terrifying, really, to watch. And then to, to hear that he died about 40 hours later in a hospital in Brisbane. Uh, a heavy event, I think, for the Australian community and uh, especially for his family and all the people who were in Nauru with him. And the callous way that he was treated? I think uh, shake your head, I guess, is the only thing you can do when uh, the minister uh, insists that everything was done fast as possible to get adequate medical care to Amit. When it was virtually 24 hours before there was an evacuation flight out of Nauru. So really, I think what happened was a plane was flown from Australia to Nauru and then there was an issue about availability of a pilot somehow in all of that as well. It's incomprehensible, actually. This doesn't quite add up. I guess there has to be some investigation of, of this aspect of what took place. But I think the deeper, the deeper aspect is what is it that uh, drove Amid to... After those words, he was reported to say to the, towards a, a visiting UN High Commission for Refugees person and then to actually set himself aflame. That's what we have to focus on. And uh, I think he's a person who fled Iran because of fear of persecution. Basically, he, he wouldn't go back to Iran because he feared for his life. And uh, under the regime imposed on him and others by the Australian government, his life is gone. This, the view we've taken is that and this is a pretty terrible expression of the fact that the Australian government policy suits a dictatorship in Iran. It, it fits what they wanted to achieve. You know, we, we all as a nation have to really look at what is going on and uh, this, this is a long trail of incidents like this uh, in, in the uh, immigration, it's not really immigration, in the treatment of asylum seekers to Australia and uh, we have to find a way to pull our political leaders back into a human rights and international law framework and stop being some kind of rogue state. The trouble is that the Labor Party set this up so it's egg on their face if they come out now and criticise the, the, the coalition but it needs probably backbenchers to put more and more pressure on the leaders who are too frightened, in a sense, to back off. Yes. There's already been, I think, four backbenchers speak out, but they're all uh, women, I think, and all uh, not recontesting the federal election that's due on July 2. However, it's, I think we should all recognise that there's been a very, very fierce debate inside the Labor caucus and in, in the Labor Party about the uh, current policy. Many people heard the, re the debate that took place just about the turnback aspect at the last uh, ALP National Conference in July. It was a very emotive session. We all should know that it's an open fight to change the Labor Party, the Labor you know, opposition's policy back to one that upholds international law. We need more of these backbenchers to speak out and I do think it's notable that the ones speaking out so far are women who have got at least the courage to express their firm opposition to torture and war. 
We also have to acknowledge that these refugees, including Ahmed, are coming from a country where they are treated extremely badly. People don't leave their country for a better life. They leave it because they're threatened. In this case, it's tr- it's really true. There's, uh, you know, in Australia's history, we know we've had a lot of migration, and it's been a combination of people seeking a better life, uh, economically speaking, and people fleeing persecution. Large numbers of both. Possible to have both, but in Iran, we have you know, a, a dictatorship which has been there since 1980, say you could say. So it's um, 36 years. Its principal uh, line of operation is to attack women and their rights, and then anybody who objects to that is a target. So the whole democratic movement or the, the population who want freedom and democracy in Iran are all under threat. It's an incredibly isolated government there. They manage to control the opposition to them by terror. So it's, it's no surprise that young people flee because they have the experience of their relatives or their friends disappearing or being arrested and uh, held in prison in shocking circumstances, being tortured and then being executed. Iran today has the highest rate per capita of executions in the world. Last year, it was at least 1,000. That is, 1,000 people were executed in a formal way, killed by the government. In, in Iran. It's, there may have been a few more than that executed in China, but China's population is 10 times as large. A fact which is not talked up or uh, uh, reflected in the media commentary in Australia about Iran, but it's a terrifying place. And quite a lot of these executions take place in public squares, people being hung from mobile cranes. The community is made to look at this, and uh, the message is unmistakable that if you don't do what you're told, you know, this could happen to you. As well as that, there is an economic calamity in the, in the country, first of all because the rulers of the country aren't, aren't at all good at uh, economics and business. They're mainly clerical people. And so it's like some sort of uh, medieval thing that, that Westerners have to think about to, to try to understand this, as well as that because of the intensity of the regional conflicts there's an enormous amount of money being spent on war, especially in Syria, to some extent in Iraq and in Yemen. There's a very high unemployment and uh, you know, massive inflation, very, very widespread poverty in, in Iran. And so, yeah, there would be people just uh, trying to go overseas like people do from you know, uh, southern Europe and Ireland and so on because they can't get work. But I think in Omid's case, uh, it'll be clear enough, he was found to be a refugee. He was fleeing fear for his life. Was he being threatened with being returned? Uh, all of the people on, on Nauru and on Manus are being urged to return. And uh, recently, unfortunately, you know, Australia hosted the foreign minister of Iran and uh, our foreign minister's first request to, to him was to agree to the forced repatriation of these asylum seekers. It's completely against uh, our own laws to do this sort of thing. I think it, it was deeply ironic to me that the Iranian foreign minister could adopt a, a holier-than-thou attitude to our foreign minister and criticise the treatment of asylum seekers in, in these uh, detention centres in Nauru and Manus. 
you know, it's really a bit rich coming from, from that regime, but that's the way uh, our government, both Labor and, and our coalition, have positioned Australia. How can we put pressure on, Peter? Well, I think uh, we have a federal election. Both of these major parties believe the majority of people accept, you know, this uh, savage treatment that's, that's happening at uh, Manus and Nauru, but that's not, that's not true. And uh, there are candidates standing in every electorate in, in the country who don't support that regime. Voters can tell both coalition and Labor candidates that they're voting for somebody else first because of this illegal, inhumane and completely immoral policy that, that they're upholding in public. That's the, the best thing to do right now because politicians will be now, from the end of this week, crawling all over the country really looking for your vote, my vote, anyone's vote. Up till July 2, I think that's the best method to tell them, tell all those candidates what you want, a change. Thank you, Peter. Okay, Jan, thank you for the call. And thanks to Peter Murphy from the group Australian Supporters of Democracy in Iran. Next to Jack Smith from Project Safecom in Western Australia. Started the cynical end. You know, I woke up this morning and said, let a thousand flowers bloom. But it seems that the blooms are people on fire. It cannot be gone unnoticed if people are starting to set themselves on fire. And we've had it now twice in the last week. And guess what? Not a single question in the parliament about it yesterday. And, of course, today it's the great budget of the great Conservative Party. Well, let a thousand flowers bloom, I say, because we now have almost all doctors around the country that work with children. We've had them stand in front of their hospitals by the hundreds, 200, 300 doctors with placards in front of their hospitals. Bugger you. We're going to be civil disobedience people in terms of the Border Force Act. This morning, Eva Orner, an award-winning documentary filmmaker, was on ABC 24. Her incredible movie, Chasing Asylum, will hit the screens this week or next week. We've had people setting themselves on fire, and Labour wants to be walking now just 30 centimetres behind the coalition in agreeing with everything and not upsetting the apple cart well the apple cart is very much upset so there is an election campaign here in which things may escalate if another person sets themselves on fire next week and another one in the week after if other people die during the election campaign it will successively escalate and escalating is all we're looking now for until there is a point where somebody in the coalition on the election path or Labour on the election path can no longer be silent. It says this has to change and then all hell will break loose right around the country. I think it's the only opportunity we have. Amongst friends I've sent, said for a while and I'm talking about two years, three years that only a mass suicide will upset the apple cart. And it's a very cynical view, but it's only a cynical view born on, uh, on experience and a bit of wisdom and having worked in this area since 2001. It's now so entrenched 
the disgusting consensus on torturous offshore processing is now so entrenched amongst most major parties that a real explosion needs to come about to upset the consensus. There is a good vision. You know, I can see the Greens actually doing a collective press conference with all 10, 11 senators and Adam Band saying this has to stop. You're an idiot if you vote for these old parties and not for us. Now, they're at the point that where they can do that, they may create a massive upset on the 2nd of July, the election date, by snapping up Wills and Batman, two federal seats, lower house seats. They may even go further and upset the consensus really badly in Tanya Plibersek's seat in Sydney or Anthony Albanese's seat in Melbourne. And if that happens, shock horror, the consensus also will be seriously disturbed amongst coalition and, and Labour voters. That's possible, but not very, not completely. There may be even another chance that the Greens snap up the seat of Fremantle, where Melissa Park, of course, the dissenter in the Labour, Labour Party, is quitting politics. You know, we saw Richard Di Natale two weeks ago in Fremantle with a press conference with Kate Davies, the Fremantle candidate, saying Labour cannot deliver a progressive candidate because Melissa Park has quit and they don't have a replacement radical progressive candidate. So the only option for progressive voters in Fremantle is to vote for the Greens. And he was just not doing an election campaign. He had a real point there. Fremantle, like Elba's seat and Tanya Plibersek's seat in Sydney, is becoming more educated, more discerning and more progressive. We've seen that over the last couple of elections in all these three seats that the uh, primary vote for the Greens is increasing. So there's another upset. There may just be coming a really big campaign from doctors together with Mums for Refugees. I don't know what the um, ASRC is planning, Salem Seeker Resource Centre with you guys in Melbourne. They may have some plans. I hope they do. GetUp is targeting Conservative seats in the Conservative Party in their campaign. There may be a real upset. This is an election that could that has the the right moment in history's time to create big upsets for the established parties and more so for the Conservatives than for Labour. I think Labour will do really fine because what not many people know is that Bill Shorten has now, since the 1st of January, almost 30 town hall-style meetings under his belt. He's been crisscrossing the country with town hall-style meetings. And we see an increasing shift in the polls from this great liberator, Malcolm Turnbull, of which is nothing left, to um, the hard work of the Labour Party. Now, I do know that if there is any shift, uh, it will have to be courageous, but it will come from Labour. There will be no shift in the hardline entrenched policies of the Conservatives. The only shift that we can expect will come from Labour if they're under pressure. There are some opportunities. Then, of course, we have the ghastliness. Last week, S99, Melbourne Court. In the court was a senior operative of the Immigration Department who defied five medical opinions. Five medical opinions, five doctors. 
reported about this woman, S99, who was pregnant as a result of a rape on Nauru. All these five medical experts said that she immediately should be evacuated to Australia for medical treatment and for an abortion, which she wanted. The immigration department, Honcho, defied these five medical experts and said, no, 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 we know best. We, the immigration department, we're not going to upset the apple cart. Our policy is offshore detention. They're not coming to Australia. That's the idiocy that's at work at the moment. And that's the idiocy that's almost worked completely under the table by the callousness of the conservatives who do not want to talk about this stuff. You know, there was a reason for the secret votes and the secret policies under Tony Abbott. Don't let it make the newspapers. That's the only policy they have there. Don't let it hit the newspapers. Don't let people become aware of it. And I'm quite assured, without having seen it, that Eva Orner's movie, which is called Chasing Asylum, will lift a lot of lids of the hidden stuff. She's got some really extraordinary footage from Nauru and Manus Island, and she's got a whole army of whistleblowers that worked on making the film that will remain unidentified in this movie, but it's going to really shock Australians if they see it. So I hope it actually gets picked up by, um, by a lot of um, mainstream television channels over the next uh, two months before the election is done and dusted. I'd imagine, too, there's going to be more demonstrations in Brisbane in the coming days because the young woman who set herself on fire yesterday will be brought to the Brisbane Hospital. Yep, yep. Um, I know there are plans, but I want to see some union involvement. I want to see some unions marching through the streets against Conservatives and against offshore processing. Very crass, very direct. Just shock Labour into action. And that can only come if a couple of unions have some very loud banners condemning offshore detention. Because Richard Miles who is the immigration spokesman for the Labour Party, who is also, by the way, was the best man at Bill Shorten's wedding. Richard Miles went on the record last week in the most crass way when, and when PNG announced that following the Supreme Court decision, they were going to close Manus Island. And it's a huge issue. Richard Miles had the temerity to go on the record on Sky News and tell people that uh, PNG should create a law circumventing the Supreme Court decision. In other words, politicians in PNG should become lawless, just like the Immigration Department has always done in Australia, be lawless and circumvent the decisions of Australia's highest courts. They've done that for decades. Richard Miles was was, um, adamantly bullying that PNG should do likewise, and the government should throw more money against the PNG government so they would shut up and do our bidding. That was the gist of what Richard Miles is saying. So Richard Miles is just as shonky a human rights criminal as Tony Abbott or Philip Ruddock or Peter Dutton or Scott Morrison or, T- or Malcolm Turnbull. They're all 
people that should be in the dock, they should be fronting a court. But we don't have a human rights court in Australia. Otherwise, they would not even say this stuff. Maybe it's time for international sanctions against Australia. The trouble on refugees, it won't happen. You know, the UN is so nice and so pushy-footing because when the UN starts taking it out against one of its nations... Those nations say, bugger off, we don't want the UN, because the UN is a core of diplomatic people. International sanctions can only happen if not large nations stand up and condemn Australia. Well, look at Europe. Half of the European countries are trying to copy what Australia is doing at the moment. And we have the, the Republican candidate uh, bragging that he's going to build a fence around America to stop illegal immigrants. So this whole consensus about illegality by major Western countries is one of the most disgusting developments that has come about in the last decade. And it's only growing and it's not shrinking. It really comes down to the people. I mean, look how compromised the United Nations is. You know, we have reports emerging from via the ABC yesterday that Poor Omid, the 23-year-old who set himself on fire in front of UN staff visiting Nauru. He did so after a delegation of the United Nations spoke to all the refugees on Nauru, telling them, look, folks, be prepared. You're going to be here for the next decade. You're not going to get off the island for the next 10 years. And Omid and everybody else said, what the fuck is happening here? Is the UN on side with us? What's the problem here? If we have the United Nations not supporting us, what's left of us? There's nothing left. We may as well bloody die. And so Omid set himself on fire that was directly attributed to the comments made by the United Nations. So my tweet this morning to the UNHCR in Canberra was pretty direct. I tweeted, so since when is UNHCR Canberra appointing idiots with zero people skills to its staff? And when will UNHCR Canberra apologize? They're employing idiots with zero people skills at the UNHCR office in Canberra. They then visit Nauru and are becoming direct triggers for people setting fire to themselves. So it needs to come from decent people. From the last year, I do know there are a lot of decent people in Australia that are now starting to see how brazen the consensus is between Labour and the Conservatives, and they do not want this. That's the thousand flowers that are blooming, and they need to be nurtured by the right civil actions over the next three months, preferably before the next election so that this whole election campaign is really getting its dirty, stinking nose pointed, rubbed through this issue by civil actions. And it needs to be set up properly. It needs to be done properly. But I do know there are enough people in Australia who no longer take this bullshit of the consensus and shut up about this issue. It's offshore. They came here illegally by boat. That's what they deserve. There's a lot of people very angry about that, and that can be mobilised. Thanks, Jack. You came full swing there, didn't you? I think I started with cynicism, but I worked my way back to opportunities and 
a thousand flowers that can bloom. That's what I hope will happen. I hope a lot of people among your audience will listen and ask themselves, how can I take action? How can I join with others? Thank you so much. Thank you. Some good advice from Jack Smith from Project Safecom in WA. Just another announcement. No, I won't make an announcement. I'll just say it would be good to see you at the book launch on Friday, 6 o'clock. I'll go out this evening with a song for the Eureka Stockade by David Rovix, another struggle many, many years ago. The struggles continue. But that's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.